Hebrews chapter 3 and the verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Partakers of Christ. This is a very important verse in the chapter. In fact, this is a verse that captures not only the essence and the substance of this chapter, but also of the whole book of Hebrews itself. A case could even be made that this is the book's key verse, that it could serve as the very proposition of the whole epistle, that you could in fact write this verse beside the title, right at the very start of the book itself. As we come to this verse, there are five things in it that I would like to reflect with you upon. There is, first of all, a person, Christ. Then there is a provision that is in him. And there is a people, and there is a participation of that people in the provision. And there is, finally, a perseverance, a steadfastness of faith unto the end. So we want to think about those five heads. Now at the heart of this text, as at the heart of the book itself, is this wonderful person that the Apostle here calls Christ. He has only brought that name into the third chapter. He's looked at so many names for Jesus. But at the start of chapter 3, he introduced this name, And that's the name that he chooses to set in the heart of this text. Christ. This epistle sets forth the uniqueness of Christ. How that he is special. How that he is a glorious person. Paul has already been spending time showing to us he is the Son of God. He is the one who is crowned with glory and honor. He is the one that is exalted above all. And so whenever we read this name Christ, we're not reading about a stranger. We're not introduced for the first time to this person. The chapters 1 and 2 especially, and the start of chapter 3, have been all spending those precious words, introducing us to him. Telling us about his superiority, his supremacy. So Paul has been preaching him fully already. This great and final prophet through whom God speaks to us. The Son of God himself that made the worlds. In the beginning who has laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of his hands. This person, Christ. He tells us that he is unchangeable, that everything shall wax old in the universe, and as a vesture the Lord will fold them up, but he remains the same, the eternal Son of God, whose throne is an everlasting throne, who is the one who became incarnate for us, who was made flesh and dwelt among us, and who, Paul says, himself purged our sins. And is now set down at the right hand of God. And he is Lord of all. 
And he has the most excellent name. And this incarnate one, Paul has been telling us, is greater than angels. He's greater than Adam. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than all. He's the greatest. And all things are put in subjection under his feet. So it's that person. That person who became Christ for us. That person who came into the world for us. That person who received the fullness of the Spirit. And was made all things that we need for our salvation. Christ. And without that name, this verse would be meaningless. It would be empty. It would have no comfort for us. It would have nothing to instruct us concerning our salvation. It's only the name that makes it all powerful and mighty. That makes it all so wonderful and true. Christ. So we have to start there. This dear person who loved us and who gave himself for us. Christ. So that's the person in the text who purged our sins and is now at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 and all of that that the apostle has been expounding. But then there is secondly a provision that is in this Christ. Because this epistle is not just about the person. Not just about his dignity as the Son of God. Not just his supremacy and his preeminence as a person. But it is about him as Christ. As our Christ. As Messiah. That is as the sent one, the apostle. The one who has been sent. The sent saviour and redeemer. As the one who comes into the world to save us. So this epistle is not merely a lecture on the theology of the second person in the Trinity. It is not just informing us and giving us intellectual notions merely of a glorious divine person. It's not merely telling us of the Son of God in order to just worship him and be taken up with his majesty. No, this is a sermon that is showing us he is essential for our salvation. That this person has something that we need. That this person became Christ and came into the world to bring to us something that we need. He has the provision. That's what this epistle is about. That's why Paul is preaching Christ and setting forth His glory about everyone else. He's the one we need. He is the one that is all sufficient for us. The great salvation is in him. That great salvation that we mustn't neglect. It's in him. So he's the son of God. But he has become Christ for us. He is apostle and high priest of our profession He has become something for us. As God, the Son of God, reigning in all eternity, he has glory, but he has become Christ to bring a provision that we need. And this is what the Apostle is setting forth. The Son of God has left heaven. That implies incarnation, 
His coming into the world, his taking flesh and blood, his possessing the Spirit of God for our salvation and becoming Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, who became servant for us in the house of our salvation to bring the provision of salvation to all that are in the house. So this epistle doesn't mean anything unless you realize that. Here is an all-sufficient one. The only all-sufficient one who brings to us the great salvation. As Paul says, he by himself purged our sins. He brought in the purging of sins. He by the grace of God tasted death for every man. This is what Paul has been saying. Through death he's destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. He's provided the destruction of Satan. He's provided the forgiveness of sins. He's provided the deliverance of them who all their lives feared death. And going into the darkness of eternity through death. All their lives fearing that. He's the one who has provided the deliverance from that fear. This is what the apostle has been saying. He's the one that takes hold of the seed of Abraham. Who takes hold of them by his gracious hands. And saves them and redeems them. He's the one alone who does that. Who provides the salvation. He's the one who, as it were, is the merciful and faithful high priest who has a great heart for sinners, who intercedes for sinners as well as dies for sinners. He is the captain of our salvation that we saw in chapter 2, the great pioneer of salvation who has gone before entering into the rest of God, going into that eternal rest in his own sacrifice and death for us, and bringing us there with him, who has provided the rest, who has brought us into the rest, the one who in Psalm 95 has the deep places of the earth in his hand for his sheep, who has the fountains of water, the soul-refreshing water of life for the sheep, for the saints, the one who is greater than Moses, for he failed to bring them in, the one who is greater than Aaron because he failed as a great high priest of his people, the one who alone brings us into the heavenly rest. So there is this provision in Christ. And it's a finished provision. It's a completed provision. And the epistle is always bringing that out as well. It is telling us all things are now ready. Nothing more is to be done. We have a saviour who has finished the work. We have a saviour who has entered into the rest and has nothing more to do. We have a saviour who has sat down at the right hand of God. We have a saviour who has entered into the holy place and by one offering has perfected forever his people. So it's a complete and finished provision. And this epistle is all about that. The table is ready. All things are now ready. And he that hath entered into his rest hath ceased from his labours. The work is done, it's finished, it's accomplished. And he now enjoys that Sabbath. And we who have faith in him begin to enjoy that Sabbath rest with him. 
Because he's the provision for all these things. He's the Lord over the house of salvation that we read about at the start of this chapter. And that house, it is implied that it is furnished, that it has all things needful for all them that occupy it and are therein, so that they shall have all that they need for salvation and never perish. There's no incompleteness, there's no shortfall, there's nothing lacking. And sinners who believe in him have all the provision that they need. Complete in Christ alone. This is what the apostle is teaching throughout this epistle. And this verse captures the essence of that. The person and the provision. But then thirdly, that brings us to the people who participate in this provision. Because it says there in verse 14, we, we are made partakers of Christ. We partake of the provision that is in him. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast on to the end. You see, the provision is not for himself. He had all things in glory, but he came into the world to make the provision for a people. This people that the apostle calls we. And the apostle Paul is including himself. He's one of the saints. He's one of the Christians. As with all believers, he's referring to Christians. To those who profess the gospel. To all in the church, all the baptized ones, the confessing ones, the professing ones. The ones that are spoken to by the word. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. We, the ones who have heard the gospel, we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The brethren, as we have so often seen them described in these chapters, the brethren unto whom Christ was made like, the brethren that he's not ashamed to call them his brethren, the professors of faith, those that he bought with his blood, his brethren, the people of faith, those who believe, those who have confidence in him. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence. They've made a beginning. They have confidence in Christ. They have faith in Christ. These are Christians, believers, who trust in the Redeemer. And they are related to him by faith. So there is the person, there is this provision and the people who by faith believe in him and participate in the provision. And that's where we come now to the fourth thing and it is really the main thing, the participation. For we are made partakers of Christ. And that lies at the very heart of the text as at the very heart of the epistle. Believers have a sure. He has made the house full of all the good things of salvation as the Lord over the house. And we who come into the house participate, partake of all of that. Partake of salvation. 
Paul is then telling us of the privilege and the position of all Christians. All Christians are the same. There are no exceptions, no differences. We all partake. There's not some better partakers and more privileged partakers than others. No, we are all partakers together as the members of his body. What is a Christian? A Christian at heart is a partaker of Christ. And it's not that he shall be a partaker of Christ or he might be a partaker of Christ. What does the verse say? We are made partakers of Christ. That's what we are already. A believer is made a partaker. If his faith is real and genuine in Jesus Christ, if it's true, he has been made a participant in all that Christ has obtained for him. So Christians were not born partakers. We were born partaking of the table of the devil. We were born partaking of anything that Satan might throw to us in the dungeon of his dark kingdom. But Christ has brought us out. He has redeemed us and he's brought us to the table of salvation. That table that we read about in Psalm 23. The table furnished with all the grace of God in salvation. In the very midst of our enemies in which all the sheep, all the flock, all the people of God partake. We're made partakers, not born partakers. Made by God's grace partakers. Through God's calling. You remember how he started the chapter? Brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That's where it started. It started in your partaking of the calling of the gospel. In your response of faith. You began to have the first taste of the sweetness of Christ. You began to have the first slice of the great cake of salvation. In the holy calling of which you participated. And God by his spirit has brought his people into this participation. Remember how Paul said to the Colossians that we give thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. We've been made to be partakers of the inheritance through grace, through the Father's grace. And this is essential to salvation. This is what a Christian is. There is no salvation, no heaven, no eternal rest without partaking of Christ. Without being in God's house under Christ's rule and partaking of the provision in him. And all men have to be made partakers of Christ in order to eternal life. And this is very properly illustrated in the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is a partaking of the Lord's table. In fact, we read that tonight. Partakers of the Lord's table. We read also that we being many are one bread and one body. Why? For we all are partakers of one bread. 
One bread of life. One everlasting life. One resurrection and the life. One the way, the truth and the life. We are made partakers of the one bread, the one saviour, the one redeemer. And the Lord's Supper illustrates that. Because the Lord's Supper is set forth as a partaking of Christ. And every true Christian of faith comes to the Lord's Supper. And he takes the bread. And he takes the cup. And he eats the bread that sets forth the broken body. And he drinks the cup that sets forth the shed blood. He partakes of Christ. Now we know that the bread and the cup is not literally changed. And we don't literally take the body and blood of Christ. But there is a partaking of Christ by faith. Because all Christians have faith. Except you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So there is the partaking of the person of Christ. The partaking of all that he is. The partaking of all that he has done for our salvation. A union with him through faith. So the eating symbolizes the participation of faith. Believing on him. Depending on him. Trusting in his sacrifice. Depending on his atoning blood. Resting in his finished work. Sitting around him. Feasting on this great redeemer who died for us. And for our salvation and the forgiveness of all our sins. This is my body. Take, eat. Partake. Participate. It's for you, the life for you. And so the Lord's table sets it forth. And what it is telling us is that we have to have faith in Christ. And we have to depend on him alone. That life that was lived for us. That death that was suffered for us. That resurrection that was powerful for us. That Reign at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us. We have to depend on all of that. We have to, in our faith and union to Jesus Christ, rely on all of that. Live on that. So you see that all is wrapped up in Christ. And no salvation without the participation in him and with him. And so this rules out the foolish notion that is so contrary to the teaching of Christianity that all religions lead to God. That all religions, one way or another, get to heaven, get to the road to life. That all, one way or another, bring us into the salvation. No, no, that is contrary to the whole scriptures. And especially to the epistle to the Hebrews. Christ is the only way. Christ is the only saviour. Christ is the only pioneer of salvation. Christ is the only one who can lead us into the heavenly rest. Who can bring us into that place of tranquility and peace with God. That eternal salvation into heaven itself. The only destroyer of Satan. And so to get there, all must be and remain so to be partakers of him. And of him alone by faith. As Peter puts it in different language. But setting forth the same truth. 
The stone which was set at naught of you builders has become the very head of the corner. And neither is there salvation in any other. Christ alone. And as we must be living bricks joined to him by faith in the great house of salvation in the church, so we must be sitting at the table where he has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and feed on him by faith. This partaking of Christ is then the heart of the gospel message. You must believe in him. It is two ways this partaking. I would emphasize that. We partake of Christ, but we must never forget that it commenced with him partaking of us, of our humanity. That's first. That must be first. We could not possibly partake of him and of all that he is for us unless he partakes of us. And so it didn't begin with our participation. It began with his participation. His partaking. And the apostle has dealt with this in chapter 2. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise also took part of the same. So we are flesh and blood, perishing sinners. But Christ came into the world and he partook of our nature. He became man. He partook of very flesh and blood himself to be the life of the world, the life of sinners that believe in him. And so Christ, by his incarnation, entered into fellowship with human life, our very human life, and all its stages, birth, Childhood, youth, manhood, through life, through death itself. He even partook of our death. And by faith in him, we partake of his life. So we mustn't forget his participation and his grace. That's foundational. But because he has partaken of our flesh and blood, we can partake of his everlasting life. That he has obtained for us. It's all in Christ. Neither is it found anywhere else. And this participation in Christ implies two things. It implies that he's alive. He's living. Because you can't partake of a dead thing. Of a thing that is not. Of a thing that has disappeared and decayed and is gone. And is under the bondage of death. No, he's living, he's alive, he's at the right hand of God, and he is one that we can believe in. So this partaking of him implies he's living, and he is very much alive, and he ever liveth for us. And it also implies he is sufficient, that he is enough in himself, all sufficient, and nothing more needs to be added to him. He is complete saviour, and in him we are complete. He has perfected forever them that believe in him. He is such a saviour, such a shepherd saviour, that we can say, I don't want anything. All that I need and require is in him. You're complete in him. There's an all-sufficiency in him. But then lastly, there is a perseverance of faith in him. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. 
Now, I want you to observe that that verse is very like another verse that we preached on a number of weeks ago, verse 6. There are words that occur in both verses. Verse 6, Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Do you see the words that are occurring in both verses? There's the word Christ, his name. And then this holding, if we hold fast, holding firm, this, this steadfastness. And then this we, this pronoun we, if we hold. And then unto the end, steadfast, holding firm, unto the end. All of those words occur in both verses. So they're very similar verses. And it shows that these verses are the heart of this chapter. Paul is then going back to the sentiments in verse 6. Repeating them again. And in between both texts. Giving these warnings of backsliding. These warnings of departure. These warnings of an evil heart of unbelief. And the danger of not having true faith in Christ. Now it's clear that being Christ's house. Parallels being partakers of Christ. There are different images there. Christ, whose house are we? But the same truth has been set forth. We're partaking of him. We're in union with him. We're his house. And he's over us. And this house of salvation. And he's all that we need. And we partake of him. So there are parallels that are very clear. But you'll notice that the very important and very strong parallel is the importance of persevering. In faith. What does verse 6 say? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Holding fast the confidence to the end. And then in our text, verse 14, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. It's the same thing that is repeated. And it is the importance of steadfastness of faith and never departing from Jesus Christ. We've made a beginning. Because you couldn't possibly be partaker of Christ unless you had made a beginning. We began to partake of him when we first believed in him. But it didn't finish then. I mean, if anyone just comes to Christ and you think that's it, it just begins and it ends there, they're utterly deceived. Saving faith is not a once moment, once in the distant past action that is ended and complete and over. No, saving faith has a beginning. But it continues. It goes on and on and on to the end. It perseveres. True saving faith perseveres. It has that element of eternity in it. Because they're born of God, eternal life. The Spirit of God has come into them, and there is the perseverance of faith. So a beginning has been made. They've been made partakers, they've been brought into the house. But we have to stay in the house, and we have to continue to be partakers to the end. To the end, brethren and sisters, there's no choice. There's no alternative. You have to abide and be steadfast, believing in Jesus Christ to the end. To 
to the end. We must continue participation. And the one who is steadfast to the end is truly a partaker. So if he has genuine and real faith, it is true and it will be known to be true. And this is how it is known to be true. It has this element of continuance. Not deserting Christ. Not leaving the house of salvation. But continuing therein. Ever clinging to the only Saviour to the end. And those of us who have faith in Christ, through the grace of God, we do that. We continue to do that because we know that in that alone is our salvation. Dare not desert Christ. So saving faith is persevering and continuing faith to the end. Now it admits of degrees. It can grow and decrease. It can go up and down. But its object is always Christ. Always taking hold of Christ. Always trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins. Always seeking the cleansing of his blood. And so if Christ is truly believed in, the believer will always believe in him unto the end. And what is the end? Well, the end is death. Or if the Lord comes back again before we die, the end. We have to persevere to the end. The end of life, the end of the world. So saving faith has a beginning. But it also has a continuance. Well, you ask, well, what if someone believed and did not continue to the end, but left the faith, departing completely from Christ and never returned? What would we say of that? Well, we cannot judge these things perfectly. But very likely, one who apostatizes from the Redeemer did not have true saving faith in Christ. They might have professed, they might have thought they had faith, they might have been self-deceived. But you certainly cannot be saved and be lost again. Where Christ is truly believed in, that faith has something eternal about it. Because it's a heavenly seed faith. And this is a stamp of genuineness. It continues to the end. A true believer then can wander far from the fold. I know that. A true believer can backslide. But he always knows the shepherd. And more importantly, the shepherd knows him. And he always finds the sheep that has strayed and wandered from the fold. And he will bring him back again. Because, you see, with the true sheep and with the true believer, there is a union that is unbreakable. So the backslider, even the backslider, has something in him that is always telling him he cannot do without the Savior. And that thought will always play on his mind until he finally comes back again to Christ. So saints of God, believers in Jesus Christ, keep on believing. Keep on resting in Christ. Keep on trusting in him. Don't be moved away 
from partaking of him, but cling fast to him. Always seek him. Always seek the cleansing of his blood. Always seek his grace. And whatever doubts and fears and battles you go through, and whatever falls and failures in life you experience, to the Savior ever cling, ever partake of that grace without which we have no salvation. So saints of God, keep on believing. And unconverted sinners, make a beginning. Begin today. Start on the Christian life by the only way that you can commence it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have confidence in them. Trust in him to forgive your sins. Trust in his life. Trust in his death. Trust in all that he is for you as a saviour. Begin today. But don't just begin. Go on. And keep going on. To the end. To the end.